we approach the text, uh, let's pray. God, Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence here with us. As we come to unpack your holy, sacred scripture, we ask the Spirit that you will illuminate the passage uh, to each of us. Because all our speaking, all our hearing will be in vain without your illumination. So God, Spirit, please stir up our hearts and soften our hearts so we can have the ears to truly hear and to obey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, we are going to look at the very last section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, uh, the so-called armor of God passage. Now, to understand why the sudden inclusion of this armor metaphor uh, at the end of the letter and its significance for the Ephesian church, we need first to dig a little bit into the background. Uh, So we will look at three things today. Uh, in sequence. First, we'll look at the wider context. We'll look at Paul's circumstances and the church in Ephesus. And then we'll look at the explanation of the armor in detail. And lastly, we'll look at what it means for us Christians today. Okay? Cool? Good. Now, Paul wrote this letter probably around the year AD 60 during his house custody in Rome. Now, around the same time, he also wrote three other New Testament letters, Philemon, Colossians, and Philippians. And that is why these four letters are called by later Christians the prison epistles or prison letters. Have you heard of the term prison epistles before? Good. So Acts 28, the very last chapter of of Acts, give us a brief background. Verse 16 says, When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. And later in verse 30, it says, For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Now imagine, Paul was sitting at his desk writing this very letter in his rented house in Rome. He had much that he wanted to say to the fledgling church in Ephesus, a church that he founded some eight years earlier and where he came back to later and taught tirelessly for about three years. And it was only about four years earlier that he said, Paul said his, his emotional farewell to a group of Ephesian elders near the very end of his third missionary journey. Part of the speech was read earlier by Ross. And after that farewell, uh, Paul went out to Jerusalem expecting a troublesome fate and was eventually arrested there. And then after a few more dramas, Paul ended up in a custody in Rome around the year um, 59, 60. Now, after covering many important topics, Paul felt that he should draw the letter to a close. And it's not a stretch to imagine that Paul would take a pause here, thinking to himself, hmm, what should I say now? How can I further encourage this battered sense that I know so well in Ephesus? And then he looked out from his desk and looked out the window. The Roman guards in charge of the house custody were just passing by, fully dressed in their splendid armor, Paul could hear the heavy footsteps and the sound of metal pieces rubbing against each other. 
soldiers, battle, war, enemy attacks, defense, stand the ground, armor, armor, yes, a spiritual armor. That's what they need as a church, a spiritual armor for spiritual warfare. And I need to tell them that. Great, before I forget, uh, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the might of his strength, put on the full armor of God, Paul wrote. Now, the more Paul thinks of this armor, this metaphor, the more he's sure that this is the right direction to go. You see, he knows very well that the city of Ephesus is full of spiritual and worldly forces that work together against the infant church. There are at least four prominent forces in Ephesus that the church is fighting against all the time. First, the city of Ephesus was, a capital, was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. Its citizens, its citizens like to call it the metropolis of Asia. And as the political center, Ephesus was a stronghold of emperor worship. So the first major enemy force there was the worship of Caesar, the emperor worship. Ephesus was also a prosperous business center as it was situated on the trade route linking Rome to the eastern provinces of the empire. It is so prosperous and populous that it was ranked with Rome, Corinth, Antioch in Syria, and Alexandria in Egypt among the foremost urban centers of the empire. So that was the second enemy force, the attraction of material prosperity. Thirdly, Ephesus was apparently also a strong center of magic and sorcery. Acts 19 gives us an indication of that. Verses 18 to 19 says, Many of, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought the scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Now, a drachmas was a silver coin worth about a day's wage. So that's 50,000 days of wages that the magic practitioners burned that day. And how much is that? That's about... That's nearly 137 years worth of wages. They basically burned a powerful winning lotto ticket. 137 years of wages. Think about that. And hallelujah, when their hearts are changed, Jesus is worth more than a powerful winning lotto ticket. Amen? Would you give up on Jesus when you win the powerball? I ask myself this question often. So that's the third enemy force in Ephesus. That was evil spiritual practices like magic and sorcery. Now, lastly, Ephesus was also a city devoted to the worship of the Asia goddess called Artemis, or as I like to call it, Princess Diana. Because Artemis is her Greek name, but Diana is the Latin name for the same goddess. The Grand Temple of Artemis in Ephesus was labeled one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Coins of the city proudly displayed the slogan, Temple Warden, indicating that Ephesus was the proud guardian 
of the temple of Artemis or Diana. Now, the citizens were so devoted to this idol and the profitable industries around it that Acts 19 tells us that about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. That means Jesus, the Jesus way. A great riot broke out against the church because the craftsmen in the city who made the silver shrines of the goddess sensed that this whole Jesus movement was bringing a bad name to the city's beloved idol. And not only that, it was also going to destroy their livelihood, their business. Because if more and more people went out to, work, to worship Jesus instead of Diana, they would have run out of business. So the last enemy force in Ephesus was a combination of idol worship and the worldly opposition for economic reasons. So friends, that was the Ephesus of Paul's day. Emperor worship, the pursuit of material prosperity, magic and sorcery, idol worship and human opposition. Now no doubt these were only a, a fraction of the war, the total war that the rulers, the authorities, the powers, the, the evil spirits of the day were waging against the church. A war that the church seemed unlikely to win by any measure. The enemy forces were simply too many, too strong. The odds of winning were too small. Unless God is on their side. Unless God gives them his victorious armor to defeat these enemies. Now we come to our passage of the armor. Now we need to make one initial observation. That is, although the sighting of the Roman soldiers may have triggered Paul's thought on this metaphor, but the source and inspiration of his language here certainly comes from Scripture itself. You see, Paul, an ex-Pharisee, was well-versed in the Hebrew Scripture. That's what we call the Old Testament. He would no doubt have known the, the various metaphors in the Old Testament depicting God as the divine warrior. And the armor the church is to put on is, actually, is indeed the divine warrior's own armor. And we'll see this connection in a minute when we come to examine the armor now. You still with me? Still awake? Good. We come to the heavy, hefty part. All right? So stay awake. Now, some commentators have argued that the different items of the armor appear in the order in which they will be put on by the soldiers before battle. First, they need the belt of truth. The Roman soldiers would have tightened their belt first to gather in their tunic or cloak and to help keep the breastplate uh, in place when it is put on next. A tightened belt means the soldier is prepared for action, for war. And it's, it is loosened only when the soldier is off duty. And Paul was alluding here to Isaiah 11.5. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Now, this Isaiah verse was talking about the Messiah. Here, Paul has substituted the belt of truth for the Messiah's belt of righteousness and the sash of faithfulness. And then, the breastplate will be put on. The breastplate is the main protective piece that covers the body from neck to thigh. Again, this is even a more direct allusion to another verse in Isaiah. 59 verse 17, he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. Now this time, this verse 
is talking about Yahweh, God himself putting on righteousness as his breastplate, as the divine warrior who will issue judgment on his enemies and achieve justice for his people. And as you can see, Paul didn't borrow this earlier metaphors rigidly. He tweaked a little bit and changed a little bit here and there according to his own purposes. But what's clear and important is that the armor the church is to wear comes from God himself. Either the piece of armor is, is a part of God's attribute or God's character, or it's a spiritual provision that God gives to his people. That's what is important, not the rigid allusion to the Old Testament references. So the first two pieces of armor are truth and righteousness. For Paul, truth and righteousness refer to the quality of Christian's character. Paul is saying that the church's basic equipment in the spiritual battle is integrity. Integrity and righteous living. Without a truth, think about it. Without truthful, without a truthful and righteous mindset and lifestyle, we, the church, would not, would not have the firm foundation to witness to our Lord in a hostile environment, will we? Because people are watching us all the time. Integrity and righteous living. Now, after the battle of the, the breastplate, the soldiers also need the strong army boots that give them a firm grip. So this verse is actually not talking about the readiness to spread the gospel of Jesus, as suggested by some translations, but rather it is talking about a, a, a readiness or a firm grip that comes from a, a deep spiritual understanding of the gospel of peace. Just as a, uh, just as a solid pair of boots give the soldier a firm grip, a firm grip in a holding battle, a deep understanding of the gospel of peace gives a Christian a readiness or preparation for any of the devil's schemes. Now, what is the gospel of peace? The gospel of peace for Paul is simply the good news that through Jesus' finished work on the cross, sinners, we are reconciled with the holy God, finally having peace with this holy God. Before, we were God's enemies, but now we enjoy peace with God and hopefully with other believers. You see, now God is on our side. He is totally for us. We do not need to be afraid of him. And it is this conviction, this gospel of peace, it is our readiness, our firm grip in the holding battle, our anchor for our soul in our battle against enemies. Now, next, the soldiers pick up a large shield. Shield, usually made of wood and leather. The leather was well soaked with water before battle. Why? Because then it could extinguish the enemy's flamed, flaming arrows. And in the spiritual battle, the devil's flaming arrows could include anything from direct devilish attacks to the all too common temptations to fear, to bitterness, to anger, to division that could break the unity and the strength of the church. You see, Roman soldiers often, you've seen those scenes in the movies? They often lock their shields together to form a wall in front or a roof over their head. You've seen those? And, and, and that provided everyone's security. And likewise, it is our communal faith, our faith together 
within a covenant relationship with one another in the church that protects us from the reign of the flaming arrows of the devil. We cannot, we simply cannot stand on our own as individual Christians. Now, if you remember Ephesians 4, verses 4 and 6, you understand why faith in this reconciling, barrier-breaking God is the cure to our disunity. In Ephesians 4, it says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The last defensive piece the soldier was to put on before he went out to battle was the helmet. Again, it was allusion to Isaiah 59, 17. He put on the righteousness of his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. The divine warrior Yahweh wears this helmet. So do we. The helmet for a soldier is an assurance of a protection of the most vital part of his body, his head. And likewise, a helmet of salvation for Christians is the assurance of the most vital part of our new life. That is our union with Christ. We have our salvation only when we have union with Christ. When we are created anew in Christ. When our new life is found hidden in Christ. And because of this saving union, we are secure and safe in Christ. And then we can withstand any of the devil's accusation or slander. Are you sure of this? Do you know that you are secure and safe in Christ because you are united with Christ? You should not be afraid of the devil's accusation. Now, all of the previous equipment were defensive ones. We have belt, uh, breastplate, boots, shield, and helmet. But lastly, Paul mentions one and only offensive equipment, a weapon, for taking back territory from the enemy. That is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Now, the Word of God, God's Word has, has a twofold power. On the one hand, God's Word is creative. And that means when God speaks, it creates. When God speaks, things always happen. Amen? When we live and speak the Word of God, God creates new life through us. Unbelievers will be brought to new life in God, in Christ. And believers will be growing and maturing toward Christ-likeness. So that's one part. God's Word is creative. On the other hand, God's Word judges. For from God's mouth comes righteous judgment. You may be familiar with the Hebrew 4, uh, verse 12 um, there, very famous verse. For the word of God is what? And sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. God's word judges the innermost being of every person. So Christians can take this word of God, the spirit of the sword, to first examine their own thoughts and attitudes. 
And also they can examine the thoughts and attitudes of those who oppose or ignore God. The Word of God helps us realize the futility of our thinking and to correct the arrogance in our heart. You ready to take up this, this thought? Let's wrap it up. So what does it all mean for us today in 21st century Cromwell? What do you think? And before we ask what it means for us today, we have to ask what it meant for the Ephesians in first century, don't we? You see, to the Ephesian Christians, spiritual warfare was a concrete daily reality, as we mentioned earlier. Emperor, prosperity, magic, idolatry, worldly opposition. The combination of these evil forces wages war on the church in every tangible ways, every single day. Without God's armor, they could easily turn their backs on the way, Jesus, and revert back to the old pagan sinful ways of living. But what about, what about us today? What about us? What is the emperor worship of our day? What is it? Nationalism? Political ideology? Cultural superiority? What is it? What is, or is there a relentless pursuit of material prosperity in us New Zealanders? I know probably many of you are thinking, we're not as bad as the Americans. Of course we're not. But do we pursue material prosperity at the cost, at the expense of gospel living? Do we? We do, I think. That's my answer. What about where are the modern magic and sorcery practitioners? YouTubers? TikTokers? Facebook users? Or how about idolatry? The worship of anything else but the one true God. What is the Princess Diana in your life? What is the Princess Diana in our part of the world? The Otago Southland culture. Independence. Masculinity. Arrogance. Shield from the outside world. What is it? What is the Princess Diana in our church? And here's a much harder question to answer. Are you, are we, Claiming to worship God of the Bible on one hand, mostly on Sundays, but on the other hand, secretly and really worshiping our own Princess Diana. We need wisdom, honesty, and humility to answer these questions, do we? I have my Princess Diana, you have yours. What is it? Now, thanks to our technology advances today, we, have, we now have access to explosive level of transmission of information through all sorts of media. And this means that Christians, like all other people, are exposed to all kinds of ideas, opinions, conspiracies, winds of philosophies, spiritual gurus, and false Christian teachings. All of these powers and spirits of our day are essentially selling us their version of the way, their version of the gospel. They're telling us what is a worthy 
life to live according to them. Buy this, drive that, dress like this, travel like that, think like this, live like that. Then you will be happy. Then God will be pleased. They want to mold our lives into their shape. And that is why, my friends, spiritual warfare today for us cannot be an abstract concept in your life. Don't think, don't think of those big, sad moments as the spiritual attack. Someone's got a cancer. Someone's involved in a car crash. It's happening every day around you. Agree? Whether you like it or not, whether you are conscious of it or not. The enemy forces are too many and too strong. The odds of us winning are too small. Unless, unless what? Unless we come together, unless God is on our side, unless we, unless God gives us his armor, unless we stand firm with one another. Truth, righteousness, readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. I know I need it. You probably need it too. We as a church need it as well so we can stand firm on our ground for God in this bizarre generation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... We come to your presence again with a heavy heart. We know that the enemy forces are too many, too strong. And our strength is too small. But we humbly repent that many times, if not all the time, that we're actually worshiping our princess Diana. We want to worship you, but sometimes we're led astray to worship all the other idols and gods and goddesses of this age, this day. Father, forgive us. Father, strengthen us to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Come, Spirit, come to our hearts, our life, every moment, every day, so we can have the strength as the church to stand firm on our ground. We can don ourselves with the armor of God. So we are, called, we are worthy to be called your children, worthy to be called ambassadors of, of, for Christ, soldier of Christ. Help us, Lord. We need your help. Have mercy on us. We praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen.